You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, Dr. Donna Harrison, MD and CEO of American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Dr. Harrison, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Thanks so much, Andy and Sarah. It has been a while since we've had a chance to chat here on the Coffee Hour, but certainly significant events in the last few days, uh, I think, merit a a conversation with you. And uh, we appreciate all the work that you've done with with AppLog and learning more about um, the the impact of the recent um, Supreme Court decision and overturn of Roe v. Wade. Before we get into that, um, let's let's share your story. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to that uh, that beginning. What tell us about the path that led to you becoming an OBGYN? Why did you choose this vocation? Well, I'm going to give you the short version because the long one is pretty long. <laughs> so I was always interested in the sciences as a kid, and in high school became really interested in. Uh, women and and how how the whole process of of uh, new life comes into existence. But I was at that time really pro-choice because I was listening to the the rhetoric of oh, my body, my choice. And it wasn't until I got into biology in college that it became clear, exquisitely clear, that scientifically there's a new human being that that starts at the moment of spermic membrane fusion, that is fertilization, conception. So that changes the whole crux of the debate for me. And from that point on, I said, hey, you know, I, my, my right to my body ends where somebody else's body begins. And then that was part of, part of my path. But the other part is when I went to medical school and went uh, to the different rotations, delivering babies is just an experience like it can't be described. It is so uh, wonderful to be there at the point where that baby says hello for the first time to its mom and dad and vice versa. And uh, it's just a wonderful thing. So I was uh, cognitively interested in OB-GYN, but I was hooked after my first uh, delivery. <laughs> I can only imagine I, I am not an OBGYN and I have not experienced that <laughs> in my life, but I can I can imagine <laughs> what uh, what that would be like for you. And to be able to do that now as your vocation for all these years, uh, that's, that's a, a great blessing to many women, I'm sure. Can you talk a little bit more? I, I, I appreciate that you mentioned uh, body autonomy. Can you talk a little bit more about that, uh, how much that has affected um, your your career, um, but also OBGYNs in general, how that has uh, become such a part of this uh, debate over um, over whether or not abortion should be legal? Well, yeah, I'd be glad to talk about it because I think there's a real misunderstanding about what it means to respect a woman as a person and a human being and distinguishing that from saying that in order to uh, have respect for oneself, one has to be able to kill the life of another human being. They just, they just don't fit. And so, it, like I said, for me, it was a matter of understanding that when you're pregnant, that we've got two patients, and I have a responsibility to that human being inside the mom's womb as much as I have to the mom. So communicating that and helping her understand the delight of being able 
to have her own body be the place where life happens. That that is a an understanding that once women catch it, they catch the uh, they catch the whole beauty of who they are as a woman and their unique capabilities of bringing being the place where life happens. From your perspective, how did Roe v. Wade affect the work of OBGYNs while it was in effect? Well, 85 to 93 percent of OBGYNs in two different studies don't do abortion in their practice. And it's not because they can't. Every OBGYN knows how to empty a uterus at any gestational age. So OBGYNs vote with their scalpel. They just don't do them. So for 85 to 93% of OBGYNs, it didn't actually affect our day-to-day practice. What, it, what did happen, though, was a, a, uh, a kind of a, a deadening to the, the understanding of the, the uh, human being in the womb as our second patient. And that was de-emphasized. When I was first in training, that was, that was very emphasized. But uh, later on in training, as the rhetoric uh, intensified, um, the, the fact that we have two patients was de-emphasized. And I think that was a great sadness because you, you ended up not being able, uh, some OBGYNs ended up not being able to relate to their patients who really were glad to be pregnant. They were, they were happy because pregnancy isn't a disease. It's a, it's a normal life process. And uh, many women are very happy to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of times the question of viability comes up uh, with, with different laws in different states regarding uh, when certain things are legal or not legal, uh, even under Roe v. Wade um, over the last what, several years. What, what do we know about the viability age? How did that uh, play into um, the role that OBGYNs play uh, with their patients. Well, y- you would be very surprised to learn that OBGYNs didn't use a trimester system at all before Roe v. Wade. That was completely made up by Justice Blackman out of out of thin air, out of his own <laughs> book consultation. And the reason it was made up is because these the justices, I understand, appropriately assumed that most people would feel repulsion at the idea of killing a baby who could survive outside the womb. So they had to say something. Um, now, the issue, the difference, when Roe was first decided, babies couldn't survive outside the womb until about 28 to 30 weeks. But now we have babies surviving at 22 weeks. And, and it's technology dependent. So as the technology improves, improves the, the easier it will be uh, for babies to survive outside the womb. So the whole issue of viability is really, it's really a question of at what point can, a, can we separate the mom and the baby at the point of saving the mom's life? In order to save the mom's life, at what point can we separate the mom and the baby and expect that the baby could possibly live? But that decision is, is not one that we take lightly. That's, that's a decision to separate the mom and the baby is early before the baby's prepared to live outside the womb is one that happens only under dire circumstances when the mom really cannot survive continuing the pregnancy. Those circumstances are few and far between. So what does the overturn of Roe v. Wade mean? There are 
when you look at the mainstream media, social media, there are a myriad of messages mm-hmm. communicating what this overturn means. Um, from your perspective, what does this mean? Well, I, I will have to say I've never seen quite so much blinding snow from the medical profession as has come up over this decision. What Roe versus Wade means is that the stranglehold that the court had over state laws is now gone. So Roe v. Wade said the states cannot make any laws whatsoever in the first trimester. The state can make some laws in the second trimester, but only those that affect the mom. And the state could possibly maybe make some laws in the third trimester to affect the baby that that might affect, you know, consider the baby's considerations. But all of those laws had to be uh, subject to what was called a health exception. Well, most people don't understand that at the same day Roe was was decided, the Supreme Court decided a second case called Doe. And Doe versus Bolton said that health is any physical, psychological, social, emotional, any other reason. So it's the exception that eats the rule. Basically, the combination of Roe and Doe meant that there was no legal barrier to killing a human being in the womb up until the time of birth. And the Supreme Court clamped that down on all 50 states, and now the clamp is gone. So this, what the Supreme Court did in the Dobbs decision was to say Roe created out of thin air a constitutional right that was never there. If you haven't read the actual decision, you should read it. It's actually very clear and brilliant and just simply states the fact that Roe was completely made up. It was a, it was a just-so story. And so finally, what we have is what should have taken place 50 years ago, and that is we're going to have a discussion in all 50 states about what the people want. Do the people want abortion or do they not want abortion in their state? And that, in a democracy, is the, is the appropriate place for the discussion to take effect. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of, of questions from people, but I, I want to get to the flip side of, of the question that Andy asked, and then we can go into some, some other details maybe after the break. Uh, what, what does Roe Ro v. Wade, the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, not mean? <laughs> yes, Ro, the overturning of Roe v. Wade does, mean, does not mean that abortion is illegal in this country. What it does mean is that each state will decide. So you're hearing a lot of blinding snow, stuff that is just fantastical. Like, well, doctors can't treat ectopic pregnancies. That's completely ridiculous. We have, all of us, pro-life OBGYNs and OBGYNs who are pro-life, we all treat ectopic pregnancies. It, and, and you're hearing people say, well, you can't treat miscarriages. That's ridiculous. That's what an OBGYN does. We empty the uterus at every gestational age. The only thing that differentiates the 93% of OBGYNs that do not do abortion from those 7% that do is that the ones who don't do abortion, they don't kill, intentionally kill a living human being inside the womb. And that's what an elective abortion is. It's, the in, it's an action. It's a procedure, something done in order to produce a dead baby. That's the primary purpose of an elective abortion. And we know that because if you think about the term failed abortion, What's a failed abortion? The separation from the mom didn't fail to occur. What failed to occur is the baby failed to die. You've got a living baby after an abortion, and that's what makes it a failed abortion, because the purpose of an elective abortion is to produce a dead baby. 
We have more to learn in our conversation today with Dr. Donna Harrison, MD and CEO of American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Today we're talking with Dr. Donna Harrison, MD and CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, taking a look at um, what are the implications of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And Sarah, I know you... I'm just going to hand it right back to Sarah because <laughs> I, I know you have more questions based on we were talking about what the overturn of Roe v. Yeah. Wade does not mean. Yeah. So I'll, I'll hand it back to Sarah. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, the, the ectopic pregnancy and, and miscarriage question. This is something that I think is in my social media over the last few days. This, I think, is the one thing that that just keeps coming up. And there are so many posts on on both sides of this uh, spa- saying um, exactly what what you've been saying, and also the exact opposite of what you've been saying that uh, that these treatments for ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage um, will be in or might be in danger because of this. Can you can you speak to some more clarity about this, uh, especially with the the trigger laws that have gone into place, uh, laws that will be happening? I see a lot of, of fear and anxiety about what these trigger laws could mean. Um, do you do you have more clarity on on what what we can expect maybe from these trigger laws, how to how to wade through all of them. Sure. It's really clear. And I'm familiar with probably 99% of the laws in the country right now. Not one of them, not even one of them, classifies the treatment of ectopic pregnancy as an abortion. It's not an abortion. An abortion is an action done or a drug given with the intent of taking a live baby and turning it into a dead baby, okay? So with a miscarriage, the baby's already died. There's no abortion if you remove a baby who's already died. The abortion comes from intentionally killing the baby, and that's really clear when you read the laws. So the, the idea that somehow ectopic pregnancies would not be able to be treated is complete blinding snow. Even ACOG, who is rapidly pro-abortion, states clearly that the treatment of an ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion, as does our organization, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. So what, what you have to understand in, in deciphering all of this blinding snow is that an elective abortion is a procedure which is done with the intent to produce a dead baby. So procedures done to remove a baby who's already died are not abortions. And I know women feel scared because they hear things that are, are uh, telling them they're not going to be able to get medical treatment. But let's take a step back and think for a minute. 
85 to 93% of OBGYNs do not do abortions in their practice. 85 to 93% of those OBGYNs, they deliver good OBGYN care. So there's nothing that changes with the OBGYN care of OBGYNs who don't do abortions. The only thing that changes when elective abortion is made illegal is that doctors can no longer go in and kill a baby who's alive simply for the purpose of producing a dead baby. Mm-hmm. I know part of this also, and I appreciate uh, your your responses to this uh, from a from a medical background is very helpful uh, for me, and I'm I'm sure for a lot of people. I know something else that people have been saying, uh, in addition to uh, an additional thing in this conversation is is how these things are coded. And I know this might get into the weeds a little bit, uh, but is there a difference in how all of these things are are coded on the back end? All of the the technical things that might uh, might affect the treatment that a patient would get. Well, there are separate codes for elective induced abortion, which are different from the treatment of miscarriage. So if a doctor is appropriately coding, he should use the code that's most accurate. He should use the code for elective induced abortion. Um, Now, the drugs are like a scalpel. Drugs or scalpels can be used for anything. They can be used for good things. They can be used for bad things. So the drugs that are used for inducing an elective abortion are the same as drugs that are sometimes used when a woman miscarries. But the issue is not what the drugs are used. The issue is why the drugs are used. So for example, I could take a scalpel to your chest. If I'm doing that in order to kill you, that's one thing. If I'm doing it to do an open heart surgery, that's a completely different thing, same scalpel. So it's the same thing. If you're using Mifeprex and Misoprostol, the two drugs in the abortion, uh, regimen. If you're using the two drugs in the abortion regimen, mifeprex and mesoprostol, and you're using them in order to cause the death of a living baby, and there is no medical reason, there's there's no life of the mother reason, that's an elective abortion. If you're using mifeprex and mesoprostol to cause the woman to remove a baby who's already died, that's treatment for a miscarriage. So what differentiates the two is is the baby dead or is the baby alive, and why are you doing this? If the baby's alive and continuing the pregnancy would mean that the mom would die, then you do what you need to do to save the mom because babies that young will not survive if the mom dies, obviously. So you either lose one or you lose two. We're, we're familiar with that. Pro-life OB-GENs do, uh, do that all the time. They make that decision as to whether or not this continuing this pregnancy will be an immediate threat to the mother's life. But if there's no threat to the mother's life and she doesn't want the baby for one reason or another, and sometimes it's not that she doesn't want it, a lot of times it's because she's being pressured or coerced into aborting, then, then that using mifeprex and mesoprostol in that case is an elective abortion because there's no medical reason for it. I know there are probably a myriad of more medical questions. I, I, I want to come back to, I, I, we briefly touched on ectopic, uh, ectopic pregnancy. Can you explain that for those of us who might not understand it fully? And then what does, um, what does this overturn of Roe v. Wade impact? Does it have an impact on procedures for that, if at all? Okay, second question first. No, <laughs> it doesn't have an impact okay. at all. First question, an ectopic pregnancy happens uh, because 
when the sperm and egg meet, they generally meet in the tube, in the woman's tube. And then they take a week for the, uh, for the embryo to travel down and implant itself inside the womb. Well, sometimes the embryos don't travel well enough and they end up implanting in the tube. When an embryo implants in the tube, 95% of the time, by the time they're diagnosed, the, the embryo hasn't developed beyond a certain point. So the, the embryo is not alive. So in those cases, there's no ethical consideration at all. In about, oh, maybe, maybe roughly 5% of the time, you'll see a baby, the, the embryo survives to the point where there's, where there's a fetal heartbeat that you can see. But the problem is, in those cases, if the baby continues to grow, the tube ruptures. And if the tube ruptures, the mom can lose her entire blood volume in a matter of minutes. So we have to separate the mom and the baby in those cases, because if we don't, the mom is very likely to die. And so it, there is, it's not an abortion. The purpose of that separation is not going in and killing the baby. The purpose of that separation is to save the mom's life. So even, even like I said, ACOG, who is rapidly pro-abortion, even ACOG, who is rapidly pro-abortion, does, admits that the treatment of ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion. It's a completely separate procedure. So what we do is we go in, either open the tube and take the, the pregnancy tissue out, or we take the whole tube, depending on how big and, and how much bleeding there is. It's, it's, a, it's a clinical judgment call how you treat that. But that's mm -hmm. the difference between that and, and uh, normal pregnancy is that the normal pregnancy implants inside the womb. Can we talk a little bit more about about those cases when the woman's life is in danger? Um, I know you said you've mentioned a, a few times that this reversal of Roe v. Wade doesn't affect um, those cases when the woman's life is in danger. Can you can you give us a little bit more of an idea of how often these cases even happen with pregnancies? Well, it's not common, but it does happen. So I'll give you an example that almost every OB/GYN has encountered, and that is when a woman's membranes rupture, her bag of water breaks. Um, sometimes when her bag of water breaks, you can wait and she can seal the bag and the fluid can reaccumulate and the pregnancy can go on. But sometimes when the bag of water breaks, there's an infection that sets in. And when that infection sets in, it can move fast in a matter of hours. So when the woman starts to get sick, and that's, that's an infection that, although we give antibiotics, of course, they don't always work. They don't always uh, cause uh, the infection to clear up. So that's a woman you have to watch very closely. And, and there comes a point where she, when she's becoming sicker and sicker, that you have to make the call. And it's always a difficult call as an OB-GYN, but especially as a pro-life OB-GYN. But you will separate the mom and the baby, regardless of the baby's gestational age, in order to save that mom's life. We probably should have just scheduled an hour to address all these medical questions. Yeah, um, we, we really appreciate your insights. We have just a couple more minutes, uh, a few more minutes left, Dr. Harrison. From your perspective, what, what do you think um, should happen next what should we as life-affirming Christians do next now that um, Roe v. Wade has been overturned? Well, I think we need to be very sensitive to the people who are hurting 
from this misunderstanding of what abortion is and isn't and what didn't didn't happen. So I think we need to be a welcoming place and a forgiving place. And I think we need to engage in really respectful and very sensitive dialogue with our with our neighbors who are who are hurting and there are a lot of women hurting. Um, they've been deceived and uh, as the discussion continues in each state and I would encourage every Christian to get involved in that discussion in their state. As the discussion continues, I think we need to bear witness to the fact that every human being is created in God's image. And every human being, because they are a human being, not because they have the right hair color, the right skin color, or the right socioeconomic status, but every human being at every gestational age reflects the image of God. And we don't just destroy that because it brings hardship into our life. So we need to be there to answer to the hardships, to answer to the women who, who uh, don't have enough money, they don't have support. And, and I would just, I'm hopeful that, that the church will be a welcoming, inviting, supportive place for women who do want to um, be the place where life happens in their body. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your your wisdom that we should uh, get involved and and care about these things and educate ourselves on on what is actually happening and not take all of our advice from social media as as we've been <laughs> discussing. Uh, that can be there. There is a lot of misinformation happening and a lot of a lot of uh, fear and anxiety and anger happening there. Um, and to be informed about these things and really know what all of this says is, is so important. Are there places that you would recommend to uh, to read all of these things, to be informed, uh, to, to actually know what's happening? Well, for the medical part of it, I would encourage people to go to our website, which is aaplog.org, because we have a lot of really good information, most of which is geared toward medical professionals, but Many, much of which is very understandable even to lay people who don't have medical training. And then I would encourage you to, um, to maybe be part of our, uh, our discussion, our Twitter and Facebook group, because we do give a lot of information there too in Smaller Bites that just talks about you know, what, uh, what is true and what is not true on social media. So that would be my only exception to using social media. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today, Dr. Donna Harrison, MD and CEO of American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for all the, the very valuable insights and for taking time to be our guest during a very busy week, I'm sure. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.